Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Religious liberty originally having been conceived of as a protection for your right to believe and worship as you wish, the government not telling you what to believe or how to worship, but not a right that you could assert against the government and require the government to support your religion or to allow you to ignore the rules that generally apply because your religious rights are more important than anything else. We do have some indications that Justice Barrett takes that really expansive, if not aggressive, view of religious liberty. And so we're quite concerned about it. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 15th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back with you. In the last few episodes, we've been talking about Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, the Supreme Court ruling in June that allowed a Catholic adoption agency to assert its religious beliefs to justify discriminating against same-sex couples, denying them their equality. As you mentioned, the decision was based on narrow technical grounds, and the court didn't come right out and say that religious liberty was a more compelling interest than equality when the two come into conflict. But Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch seemed to want that outcome. As we talked about earlier, the wall between church and state has been eroded. What do you think it would take to rebuild it? Well, many of us are doing court cases in which we make arguments, but I think part of it is probably public education and public engagement and stronger voices critiquing when the Supreme Court continues to uh, put the thumb or maybe it's the entire hand on the scale in favor of free exercise rights of religious people, particular religious institutions, and so forth, to the detriment of those who hold different beliefs or those who are a minority group that uh, is vulnerable to exclusion based on some people's religious uh, views. I think that there's a certain amount that we can do in our legislatures in terms of decisions about how money is allocated and so forth. But if the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution in a particular way consistently and does not respond to public pushback or legislative pushback, ultimately the answer is doing a constitutional amendment. Uh, That's a big process, a difficult process. Uh, so it, it, it's not. there's not one answer to your question. Your question is really important. It's a really good question. And it may require a social movement. It may require um, engagement with the courts. It may need all of those things uh, if we want to, to, to get these two important constitutional guarantees back in the appropriate relationship with each other. Turning back to Justice Amy Coney Barrett, earlier in her career, Did she rule on any cases involving LGBTQ issues while she was a circuit court judge, or is there anything in her record, 
including other writings or speeches, that might give us some insight about how she might approach LGBTQ equality cases. Yeah, with with Justice Barrett, it's more a matter of her her writings and speeches than it is particular decisions that uh, she made when she was on the Seventh Circuit. Um, she did participate in seminars and training sessions put on by a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a, a very conservative Christian fundamentalist legal group. That's how they describe themselves. They are frequently on the other side of the cases that Lambda Legal litigates. Uh, I have very often been uh, in court on the opposing side, whether the issue is domestic partner protections or marriage equality or or other things. Um, So we have good indications from her scholarship and speeches and her work with ADF that her views are aligned with their views, and we know that they are dedicated to pushing back against LGBTQ equality and marriage equality and respect and inclusion and equality for transgender people and non-binary people. The ADF is a significant part of their work, and their docket is focused on pushing back against our LGBTQ movement for equality uh, and the same legal protections and rights that other people have. And she has made comments, uh, public statements that give us a sense that she does not respect transgender people and their honest uh, claiming publicly of their gender identity. So we we have enough information about her prior views to have been quite concerned, and Lambda Legal did oppose her confirmation. We'll have to see what happens moving forward. I mean, you know some of her some of her questions during oral argument up to this point and some of the decisions that she has joined since she's been on the supreme court have reinforced our concerns but it is still early days and much remains to be seen but what we've seen so far does give us give us a lot of concern how about her record on religious liberty issues Her judicial record has less explicit information about her approach to religious liberty issues. Her scholarship and public speeches are consistent with not just a conservative view about uh, religious rights, but they are consistent with a view that religious liberty is more important and in some circumstances overrides other rights or rights of other people. Again, it's a little early to predict how she will rule in particular questions. Sometimes when a person is an academic and they're engaged in academic argument, they'll take positions that they don't then hold to when they're on the bench. We hope that that's true because positions that Judge Barrett uh, has spoken about, or when she was Professor Barrett, when she what she's spoken about, if she does follow that approach on the Supreme Court, she would be joining other justices who have spoken recently and vigorously about religious liberty as the most important right and a right that should surmount other rights or the rights of other people. Religious liberty rights as something that other people and government should accommodate, uh, which is a much more aggressive and expansive understanding of religious liberty than than what the founders would have understood. Uh, again, coming back to the idea of religious liberty originally having been conceived of as a protection for your right to believe and worship as you wish, 
the government not telling you what to believe or how to worship, but not a right that you could assert against the government and require the government to support your religion or to allow you to ignore the rules that generally apply because your religious rights are more important than anything else. We do have some indications that Justice Barrett takes that really expansive, if not aggressive, view of religious liberty. And so we're quite concerned about it. It, Again, it's early days, but we're quite concerned about it. Do you have any thoughts about how Justice Barrett's presence could affect the court's overall approach to LGBTQ issues? In other words, do you think she'll bring new perspectives that could sway other justices one way or another? Well, I think Justice Barrett has joined a court that already has members with quite extreme conservative religious views, quite explicitly anti-LGBT views uh, from some of them. And so I don't know whether her presence that much would sway views of her colleagues as much as that she might join them. Perhaps her effect might be that now many folks see the this Supreme Court as very conservative with a 6-3 majority, uh, conservative majority on many issues. And so I think there may be situations where having a essentially a supermajority of very conservative views on the court can embolden members of the court who might have moved more slowly on certain questions to go more quickly. It's a lot of speculation. You know, it's hard to know and the justices meet together in their chamber, and they argue about things, and their discussions are secret, or they're, they're supposed to be secret. Usually they stay secret, so we don't exactly know. But what we do see already is that in some of the oral argument questioning, Justice Barrett has been quite assertive in following lines of questioning that give one the impression that the government may have quite a burden to carry to enforce neutral laws if somebody has a religious objection. And there are other members of the court who seem to take that same approach. So there's reason to be concerned that some basic rules of law that have been in place now for decades may be about to change. And who writes the opinion and exactly what it says, you know, we don't know. But um, her presence on the court is likely to have an effect. And as I've said, it's, it's something that we're quite concerned about. That supermajority of conservative justices could also embolden potential litigants trying to bring cases involving even bolder claims of religious liberty before the court, couldn't it? Well, it certainly could, although I must tell you that the arguments that we're seeing in some of these cases already are extremely bold and audacious and aggressive. And some of those arguments have been in that form for quite some time. What's new is the specter of a court that has been pulled so far to the right in just these few years, these couple of years, that some of those extreme arguments may well carry the day. That's what's truly alarming here. The three Trump appointees, they're not just conservative. They're jurists who were selected because their views are exceptionally conservative. Their approaches are exceptionally conservative, and in particular on this issue of religious rights. And so, yes, we may now see this court accepting and applying as new interpretations, applying to the entire country, ideas or understandings of 
constitutional rights or religious rights that just a few years ago would have not been taken seriously. And we now have a court that might well take those arguments seriously. In other words, these arguments have been made, but now they might actually go from being very aggressive arguments to becoming the law of the land. That's something that could make a difference in every American's life uh, in ways that I think may come as a real shock to lots of people who don't follow these issues, who are not Supreme Court watchers, and don't necessarily realize how profoundly our society could change if the law changes on some of these issues. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. The court recently announced that it would reconsider abortion. Yes, that's right. And this is something that many of us have been have been dreading. There's been no secret about the religious and political right organizing and focusing on trying to end abortion access as a protected individual right. That's been going on for quite a long time. What might come as a surprise and a shock to lots of people, though, is the way the law shifted or what we've, the shift we've seen from before Justice Barrett joined the court to now that she's on the court, if we look at the specific issue of religious rights to follow or to disregard public health rules around COVID, before Judge Barrett became Justice Barrett, the court took up a challenge to public health rules. The challenge was brought by a church that wanted to be able to hold services and objected to the COVID-related restrictions. And the Supreme Court allowed the restrictions to be applied, public health rules. It has been the case for a long time that it was generally understood that a prime responsibility of our government is to protect public health. So it was a concern that that decision was was five to four, but the public health rule was enforced. After Judge Barrett became Justice Barrett, the numbers flipped. And the rule of law that's been adopted, or at least appears to be adopted, again, we're still having examples and we have to have multiple examples and put them together to see if a new jurisprudence is, is emerging. But the rule seems to be that a faith based organization, a, a church or house of worship, can insist on being treated under the most favorable rule that the government may put in place, even if that religious institution is very different from the institution that has a less restrictive rule. So for example, the comparison might be between a house of worship that is an inside space where you have lots of people that are together for a long period of time, singing and chanting and engaging in activity that can create a real risk of the spread of the virus, compared to, say, a shopping mall that is 
partly enclosed, partly open. People come and go. They're not engaged in activity that's likely to spread the virus. So the regulations applying to them were much were less restrictive. And what the court has said is that, well, if there's a less restrictive rule out there, then the religious institution should get to follow that rule, even if the religious institution functions very differently. And that if it isn't allowed to be governed by the most lax rule that it that it is being discriminated against. This takes me back to the idea I had mentioned before about whether two groups or or two individuals, whether these two things are similar with respect to whatever we're talking about, whether it's some type of opportunity or some type of rule, are they similarly situated? If they're similarly situated, then perhaps they should be treated the same. But if they're different, then it's not discrimination to treat them differently because they're different. The dissenting opinion in this public health case talked about how the court was requiring similar treatment of apples and watermelons, (laughs) that these are two very different things. And so a requirement that they have to be treated the same does not make any sense. I use this example because if we are going to move into a time when religious individuals or religious institutions can demand to be treated the same as people or institutions that are very different, We can end up basically with a society where religious people and religious institutions get favorable treatment in all sorts of situations. And that moves our society closer and closer essentially to a theocracy, where religion has a special place, special treatment, an ability to command resources or command freedom to act, even if there are real risks to other people, including in this instance, the COVID risk to public health. People know there's been arguments about abortion for for decades now, but they don't necessarily anticipate the changes in our society if we now have a Supreme Court that requires a deference to religion and religious wishes and religious conduct, where secular beliefs and secular conduct have to be treated in a less favored way. That would be a very different type of society than the society we've, we have had for a long time. We know that the fundamental freedoms of speech, religion, and so forth can be limited when necessary to protect an important public interest. So even though the text of the First Amendment uses absolute language, for instance, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, we obviously have limitations, Like, you can't shot fire in a crowded theater when there's no fire, because that could cause a stampede and people could be hurt or killed. So there, we have a limitation on free speech based on public safety. In the COVID cases this past winter, was the court really saying that religious liberty outweighed the protection of public health? Well, in my view, the court did not admit that that's what it was doing. It did not say that. It said that the religious body, the plaintiff, was being treated unfairly because secular institutions like perhaps a shopping mall was being treated better because the shopping mall was not, was not subject to the same restriction as the church. But because those two institutions are so different, the fact is, by saying the church should not be constrained by the public health rule, The effect is 
yes, to say that religious liberty was more important than the public health need, to say that people were not free to gather inside a building in those numbers and engage in that activity. So it really is quite dangerous. And one of the things we need to keep in mind, and this is always true when we when we watch how courts behave or how government behaves or how anyone behaves, is, well, what do they say and what do they do? And in this instance, they they said that the church was being discriminated against and that they were requiring equal treatment. But what they actually were doing was creating a favorable treatment for the church that created a public health risk. They really were, I think, comparing whether it's apples and and watermelons or whether it's churches and shopping malls, they're not the same. And so that makes it difficult because when a court does things or says things that don't really, they don't really hold up. They don't really, they don't really hold up when you look at, look at it closely that doesn't give society clear rules to follow, and it doesn't necessarily command respect. It may be what some political groups and social groups have wanted, because some political and social groups have wanted religious rights to be raised above other rights. But um, government is supposed to protect us, and protecting public health was certainly a prime government responsibility when the Constitution was written, when the Bill of Rights was written. So some of us do see this as a betrayal of an important respect for those core values and how our different rights are supposed to relate to each other. So we have to see what the court says. We have to see what the court does. Is there an approach in there that we can understand? Is it principled? And if it's not principled, is there something we can do about it? And that's something that you asked about before, and that is a really important question. We've talked about these issues at Outcasting, and a lot of this has left us disappointed, but not altogether surprised. We've been taught one thing about the separation between church and state, and other things about how our government is supposed to work, but we've seen something very different. What do you think that tells us about today's realities compared with what the United States claims are its ideals? Like we're all equal, liberty and justice for all, and the separation between church and state. Well, I think what we have to keep in mind is that our country has never been perfect. It's always been on a journey from profound inequalities um, on a path to try to honor those ideals better and better as we move forward. And sometimes we move forward and then things fall back. And of course, it depends on people's perspective, whether which things are seen as progress and which things are seen as lack of progress, you know, as some members of society finally are able to experience greater rights and legal protection and opportunity, that may take away the privilege or the the greater the greater rights or social dominance of another group. So it's really important that we not be cynical and that we hold on to these ideals as tremendously important and that as we do our political organizing or our legal work or our educational work, that we we keep our eyes on where we want to go and that ideally, speaking of ideals, we want to be doing it together. I think as a civil rights lawyer, part of my role is to 
try to share the idea, spread the idea that greater equality for LGBT people, it really isn't taking anything away from anyone else. There's there's enough equality to go around, even though I know that equality, say, for same-sex couples or greater respect and inclusion for transgender folks, well, it it does take away the social dominance of cisgender people or of heterosexual people. If everyone's equal, then it means, you know, some people who, who had greater rights and social dominance have less social dominance. But the message, I think, is that our society functions better with equality and with inclusion. When, when we all can bring our full self into public life and participate, and when we respect each other and make space for each other, actually that can make our country strong and effective and safe. We can reduce violence. We can, we can share good ideas. Um, it is a process of social change, and it has been ongoing for a long time. It's important that as we study history, we not glorify the past in ways that just, <laughs> that's not really what was going on. <laughs> um, that, that there were a lot of people who uh, were being mistreated, were being excluded, or weren't able to be themselves and live a full life. Um, so don't be cynical about it um, and recognize that we all have a responsibility in this work. I mean, right now, our society does feel so polarized, and we are experiencing certain types of aggressive pushback. The LGBT community, we're experiencing tremendous pushback. Um, I think because we've made considerable progress and some of that pushback is really targeting our transgender siblings and family members and, and friends and neighbors and coworkers. And, and some of that appears to be an aggressive response to the fact that same-sex couples and lesbian, gay, bisexual people have made certain types of progress. So we are, we are one movement and we are part of broader movements we need to be doing this together because whether we're talking about separation of church and state or we're talking about free speech or voting rights or equal rights of, of various kinds, those ideals are tremendously important. They've never been honored fully in the past, but they can be honored more fully if we are committed to doing that work. It won't happen unless we're committed to doing that work. And if we are committed to doing that work, it won't happen overnight either. It really is. It is it's got to be a lifetime commitment that we all make. And if we do that, then um, history does teach. If we do that, we can make progress and we can make the progress lasting. But, you know, as we've been discussing in these conversations, the balance has been tilted with respect to the Establishment Clause versus free exercise and some of the other ways. The courts are more conservative today than they have ever been in my lifetime. And that happened because some people wanted to make that happen. So if some of us think this is really out of, it's out of balance today, we have to be equally committed to making some change. And that is possible to do. Again, it, it, it didn't get to this point overnight and it won't get back in balance overnight, but we can make that happen if we're committed to doing so. We've run out of time, Jenny, but we'll continue next time. Thanks. You're very welcome. That's it for this 15th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting Team, 
including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.